today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by going back to the fountain, back to Revelation and the sacred scriptures. We've seen in previous episodes that the Bible is true and it is from God. But today we'll look at one of the main sticking points between Catholics and other Christian denominations. How are we meant to interpret scripture? Do we need the Catholic Church or any authority to hold our hand? Why can't we just read it ourselves? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find resources and a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Jonathan Loop for episode number 28 of the Apologetic Series. Our next episode here on the Apologetic Series, happy to welcome Father Jonathan Loop. Hello, Father. How are things going up in Post Falls? Hello, Andrew. Uh, things are going well. Uh, right now, It's uh, we're on vacation, which is always nice. But um, I think all things considered, things are going well. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're recording this a little ways away from when this is actually going to be uh, airing, so to speak. Uh, so mm-hmm. hopefully you will be on vacation again by the time that this airs during the summertime. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, but Sounds great. we wanted to have you on to discuss the Bible and the proofs of the, I guess, the um, inerrancy of the Bible and of Scripture and how this fits into uh, the traditions of the church and basically the church in general. Um And you are in sort of a good position to speak about this, Father, because you are, or at least your younger self, was exactly our target audience for this series. You yourself was a uh, were a Protestant, is that right, Father? That is correct. Yeah, no, I grew up. um, For those who may not be aware, uh, as an Episcopalian, which effectively is the American equivalent of the Anglican uh, religion. Uh, so, in fact, in part, what I was always taught growing up was that the very name Episcopalian, it in fact, comes from bishops. So, episkopos in Greek, uh, being an overseer or then a bishop. And uh, they took that name right around the time of the American Revolution, so as to distance themselves from the Anglicans, which derives its name from England, out of a kind of a patriotic fervor, as it were. But... Um, and when I was about when I was in college, I got the grace to convert to Catholicism. That's excellent. Well, so how how did you see uh, the Bible as you were growing up, Father? That's an interesting question. Partly because for Episcopalians, are not exactly like a lot of what we might call Bible Protestants; those who are more. Um, strictly likely to adhere to the literal sense of the Bible and what have you. Um, Nevertheless, obviously it took a very principal part of the religious upbringing that I had, partly because, well, I was sent for an elementary school to a Lutheran um, private school uh, where they did have a much greater focus on that. And as a result, on the one hand, 
um, you know, we kind of took it as the bearing for belief in Christ and what have you. And then on the other hand, and I think this is a perhaps not an uncommon thing as I grew older, let's say through um, adolescence, through early teenage years, for a variety of reasons, I started to question it a lot, actually, and to not take it very seriously. And I think we'll come back and see partly why that's not a surprising thing. And in fact, why at a much larger scale, the the Bible has been become something um, that's not taken terribly seriously. Um, and for me, kind of a transition was, so like I said, it was in teenage years when I started really questioning it. And what, let's say, pushed me to begin to reconsider that uh, was actually dealing in high school with a bunch of my Mormon friends. Hmm. Because being a young guy and liking to argue, we got into all these debates about religion. And in part, one, one of the things there was their claims, in fact, to have other scriptures. So they say that they accept the Bible, but they add to that uh, what's most famously known as the Book of Mormon. And other there's, I think, one or two other, as they say, inspired texts, one of which is called the Doctrine and Covenants, and then another is the Pearl of Great Price. And so in the part of these debates, one of my objects was to try to drive a wedge between uh, those complementary scriptures and the Bible, trying to show, in fact, that they're not compatible, that they actually do not support each other. And to do that, well, one of the things I had to do was try to read the Bible a little bit more closely so as to be able to show how it uh, disagreed with certain things that were contained in those other texts. And interestingly, that effort to read more closely began to make me take it a little bit more seriously, like that this is um, serious. There is a lot to this. And of course, it also raised the question, well, how can I definitively judge, say, that the Book of Mormon is not inspired in the same way that the Bible is? It's a mm-hmm. rather large question. You know, and I think in a way that um, leads to the importance of this question, not only from the point of view of just generally from Protestants and others, um, but also how to understand how can we distinguish the Bible from other texts that lay claim to being uh, from God in some measure or another. Um, you know, so it leads to a series of, I think, important questions. Firstly, how do we judge what is or is not inspired by God, you know, how can we safely make that judgment? As well as, you know, when we look at more closely the Bible, is it the sole and comprehensive source of what we know from God, what is revealed by God? And as a result, the judge of everything that we have to believe. And finally, is the Bible by itself clear? <laughs> you know. Right. Does it, um, is it accessible to all in the sense that anybody can pick it up, you know, passage from the Old Testament, passage from the New Testament, read it, and immediately have a perfect grasp of what God is com- intending to communicate to us? You know, all these things which are at the heart, we may say, of 
um, the difference between Protestants and Catholics, the different answers that are given to those questions. Right. So I guess I, I guess we could start a little bit backwards. Maybe we look at some of some of the things that the Protestants will will uh, attest as being part of of scriptures and 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 look at the Protestant position at at the very beginning. Um, okay. I would presume that some of the popes and and other Catholic scholars have spoken about the Protestant method of interpreting scripture. Is that where you'd like to start, Father? Yeah, sure. I think that'd be a good thing to kind of get a sense of ultimately what we'll see are errors, because that might help give a greater clarity to why the church does present things in the way that she does. Um, okay. So um, to do that, maybe what I can actually do is give a quotation by Pope Leo Thirteenth in an encyclical that he wrote in the late 1800s um, called Providentia. Providentissimus Deus, I think I mispronounced that, um, but which was uh, solely dedicated to the question of the Bible, how to understand it, and how to be guided in interpreting it. And he writes there towards the beginning, but first it must be clearly understood whom we have to oppose and contend against, and what are their tactics and their arms. In earlier times, the contest was chiefly with those who were relying on private judgment and repudiating the divine traditions and teaching office of the church, held the scriptures to be the one source of revelation and the final appeal in matters of faith. Okay. So uh, there he kind of lays out, and he's clearly speaking about the Protestant so-called reformers, such as Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, a lot of these, a lot of these people, and he highlights. We may see there uh, two aspects and how they looked at the Bible. Firstly, that it's the only source of revelation. In other words, the only way we know what God has made known to us, and as a result of that, the final appeal in matters of faith. You know, everything has to be measured against what the scriptures say, and there cannot be anything outside of that. And so. It's you know becomes the highest authority and the comprehensive source of our knowledge of revelation. It might be good to look at a few um, passages um, from various Protestant sources that can make that clear. Okay. So, firstly, if we look at some of the Lutheran sources, we have what are called the Small Caldwell Articles in the Book of Concordance, each of which were produced in the first few decades of the Protestant Revolution. And which were intended to kind of give some clarity to the position of the Protestants, because already at that time you had a very great fragmentation and a lot of different takes on things. So in an effort to kind of unify in some measure what the principal ideas were, they um, Luther, together with another of the a number of the other um, principal uh, reformers, agreed on these things. So first, with the small called articles, we read that we believe that the only rule and standard by which all dogmas and all doctors are to be weighed and judged is nothing else but the prophetic and apostolic writings of the Old and New Testament. So again, it's the only rule and standard. Everything has to be measured by it. And then in the book of Concordance, uh, we read... 
after they've after they've listed a few other things that they look to as references. For example, the um, the ecumenical, um, or I'm sorry, the the creeds the, from the early church, some of the catechisms that Luther put together. They say we we follow these. However, they're only true insofar as they're a reflection of what's in the Bible. And so they conclude by saying, in this way, distinction between the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament and all other writings is preserved. And the Holy Scriptures alone remain the only judge, rule, and standard, according to which, as the only test tone, all dogmas shall and must be discerned and judged as whether they are good or evil, right or wrong. And then finally, uh, they say that, but the other symbols by which they mean, let's say, the uh, Athanasian Creed or the Nicene Creed and writings cited are not judges, as are the Holy Scriptures, but only a testimony and declaration of the faith as to how at any time the Holy Scriptures have been understood and explained in the articles and controversy in the Church of God by those then living and how the opposite dogma was rejected and condemned. So let's say, interesting, the Nicene Creed is not a judge of the faith. Rather, it's merely a reflection of how the scriptures were understood. Uh, mm-hmm. And they do that, they say it in that way, so as to make it clear that the scriptures are the judge of everything. Okay. And for example, that's you know uh, a consequence of that is they'll reject for example, uh, the mass. Mass doesn't exist because it's not in scripture. Any, let's say, teaching about the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady as a principle here is rejected because it's not explicitly stated in scripture, for example. Okay. And it wasn't just the Lutherans. So uh, the Anglicans, for their part, in uh, what's known as the Westminster Confession of Faith, published about a century after the break with Rome, so in the 1640s, say that um, the books of the Old and New Testament are given by the inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life, but that the authority of the Holy Scripture depends not on the testimony of any man or church. So it is independent of anything else. It is the standard. And then again, turning uh, to John Calvin, who's perhaps the most systematic and clear of these early Protestants, he says that, but since no daily responses are given from heaven and the scriptures are the only records in which God has been pleased to make his truth known to perpetual remembrance, the full authority that they ought to possess with the faithful is not recognized unless they are believed to have been come from heaven as directly as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. So again, the scriptures are the only records that of God's revelation. Okay. And he goes further to say, forth, the Christian church was founded at first on the writing of the prophets and the preaching of the apostles. That doctrine, wherever so ever it may be found, was certainly ascertained and sanctioned antecedently to the church, since but for this, the church herself never could have existed. So in other words, the church is comes after the writings of the prophets. And we may, in a sense, add to that the preaching and therefore the writing of the apostles. You know, so even the church is born out of the writings, 
that are entrusted to us in the scriptures by God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. So they're they're saying there's no there's no sense in looking at any testimony of any man or any church or any creed or anything. I mean, I'm just kind of coalescing all of these that you've mentioned so far. Yeah. Everything that you need to believe, everything is there in scripture. Don't look at anything else. Correct. That's precisely right. Okay. And again, you know, it's so far that Calvin even says that um, the church comes out as such as he understands the church to be, comes out of the scriptures and not vice versa. And another aspect I think that we have to understand for the Protestants is they state that the authenticity of the Bible is not assured by the authority of the church, which is clear from what Calvin just said, but it's an important point. And that means that, frankly, they have to seek another way of judging what is, in fact, Scripture, you know, because it's not determined by a definitive decree of any, let's say, body of men, even considered as representatives of God. And so what they replace the church with is, what do you think? It's just the scripture or just the internal interpretation of what you're reading in scripture. Close, close. Um, In fact, what they are going to say, Calvin, I'll read something from him that makes this very clear, but they replace the judgment of the church as to the authenticity of the scriptures in the sense of truly being revealed by God or coming from God with the internal testimony of the Holy Ghost. Mm. So when you read it, the Holy Ghost is like, yeah, I wrote that, you know, and every individual believer is going to have that same testimony of the Holy Ghost. So again, going back to the Anglicans, going to their Westminster Confession, they write that we may be moved by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures. Yet our full persuasion of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So the church, okay, that's nice that the church may say that this is from God, but that's not definitive. What's definitive is the fact that this appeals to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, and that's what it concretely is meant by the inward testimony of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost inside of you saying this is from God. And we see the same language in Calvin. You know, he says, as to the question, how shall we be persuaded that it came from God, the Bible came from God, without recurring to a decree of the church? It is just the same as if it were asked, how shall we learn to distinguish light from darkness, white from black, sweet from bitter? Scripture bears upon the face of it as clear an evidence of its truth as white and black do of their color, sweet and bitter of their taste. So what he's saying is like, you know, if you eat something, you can tell immediately if it's sweet or bitter, right? Mm -hmm. You look at two colors, you can tell immediately if they're white or black. So in the same way, once you read a the let's say a book of the Bible, and then you read a profane work, or you maybe to take the example I already gave, the Book of Mormon. Oh, wow. Well, this one, I read it, clearly inspired. This you know, Book of Mormon, clearly not. Sure. Obviously. Okay. Sure. Um, yeah. So just to kind of conclude that, he says that, again, this is Calvin. 
Hence, the highest proof of Scripture is uniformly taken from the character of him whose word it is. If then we would consult most effectively for our consciences and save them from being driven about in a world of uncertainty, from wavering, and even stumbling at the smallest obstacle, our conviction of the truth of Scripture must be derived from a higher source than human conjectures, judgments, or reasons, namely the secret testimony of the Spirit. And again, that's within the heart of each individual believer. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can kind of get a sense of that terror, a deep terror, which is actually at the heart of Protestantism. You know, if we want to keep ourselves from driven about by this world of uncertainty, a world is like a, you know, a tornado. Well, what do we have to latch on to? Well, the internal testimony of the spirit. That's really what it comes down to. Right. Which, as we'll see, ultimately is very unconvincing as a way of determining the uh, authenticity of the scriptures. All right. So with that, it, I think would be good perhaps to turn to how the church addresses this, how the church looks at this question. And what we'll find can I, is can that I jump in and yeah, go for it. Sorry. I, I just wanted to jump in. Um, so I was just, listening back to a couple of the episodes of the crisis series that we did a couple years ago and yep. which you were part of father uh and you know what this reminds me of is the whole problem with nominalism now correct me if i'm wrong here but nominalism and, and the whole way of thinking there was instead of your mind corresponding to reality of what is outside of you instead your mind is going to come up with a concept and impose that reality from your mind onto something else so instead of truth coming from the outside, you're imposing truth from the inside to something else. And it seems here, especially with that quote from Calvin, that he's saying, you know, it's, uh, or no, sorry, the Westminster Confession, it's the inward work of the Holy Spirit during witness by and with the word in our hearts. It's it's this feeling inside with the spirit inside of the person, and that's where you're going to find the truth. Am I making too much of a stretch there and finding a comparison? Um, I would say in a way, yes and no. I mean, obviously, when we're speaking about nominalism, it's a way of how we understand reality on a natural level. What is parallel, though, I think is a subjective character of each in the sense that we're no longer looking at some objective external standard of what is or what is not true, but rather what appeals to each individual person. You know, Because again, when, mm-hmm. when you say, going back to this question, I mean, the nominalism is, okay, look, what is my mind, the words that I impose on the reality outside of myself, as opposed to receiving that reality and having a word that reflects it. Here, you know, it's right. again, not, not this external standard of judging that, say, this text is from God or not, but rather my personal response when I read that. I, I read this and I have the same response as when I taste something. It's a subjective experience. And of course, okay. inevitably, inevitably, that's going to lead people to have different judgments. Because if you think about Calvin's own example, you know, um, different people are going to have different responses to different food or the same food. You know, one person is going to say, this is amazing. I don't know if you like spicy food. It's like, yeah, this is amazing. Same person takes the same food. It's like, this is awful. And I am going to die. You know, right. so and right. So that subjective er character is, in fact, going to set up Protestantism 
to collapse. And to, for a lot of liberal Protestants, especially in Europe, the turn of the late 1800s, early 1900s, to effectively reject the divine uh, origin of the Bible altogether. Because like, there is no way we can come to an agreement on what this means. So it can't be from God. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Well, I think I, I interrupted you. You were about ready to start give the start to give the Catholic response to uh, everything that you just laid out. So, uh, yeah, please feel free. Go ahead, Father. Yeah, no worries. All right. So, it's a couple of things uh, I think which will be helpful to really have a good answer to the Protestant position. The first of which is to understand a little bit more clearly what we mean both by uh, revelation. And then by inspiration, which are two distinct things. And then to look at um, what are the sources of revelation and the rules of faith. Um, In each of those cases, they're looking at similar things, but from slightly different perspectives. And um, what we'll see is the church is very balanced and um, gives a very sure means of being able, in fact, to trust the Bible and to receive deeply from it. So in the first place, the question, what is revelation itself? What do we mean by revelation? And um, because that's actually distinct from the inspiration of the Bible. So revelation can be understood objectively in itself and then subjectively in us. Now, objectively, Father uh, Garigou Lagrange defines it as a supernatural act that is free by which God, speaking to us through the prophets and in the last times through Christ himself, under a certain obscurity, has manifested uh, supernatural mysteries and natural truths of religion in such a way that they may be infallibly proposed by the church without any change in their signification, their meaning, even unto the end of the world. Okay, So it's something that God does, and that he does firstly through, to speak very broadly, through prophets, and ultimately, of course, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He makes these truths known to us, which are otherwise especially when we speak of the supernatural mysteries hidden to us. And of course, subjectively, there's a judgment on the authenticity that this message is indeed from God, which is firstly in the prophet, and then ultimately through those to whom the prophet is sent. And Father Gregory Lagrange states that, okay, we need a proportionate light. And the prophet needs a light of grace to accept this from God Um, and to understand that in a way we can actually look at a uh, episode in the Bible where you have times where God makes things known to people, but they cannot figure out what, what it's meant. That happens to the Pharaoh in Egypt. He has those dreams of the seven fat cows and the seven really thin cows. And he's like, what in heaven's name does this mean? And Joseph, uh, one of the, Uh, patriarchs is sent for and he interprets it for him he's able to see what god is revealing through that um and ultimately that's gonna be important because that's going to uh, apply to the church who's been given and entrusted by our lord the holy ghost to be able to 
ascertain the meaning of revelation and to give a definitive statement, this is what God intends to make known to us. Now, um, inspiration for its part, um, again, is, is distinct and is specifically connected to this, uh, the Bible, the scriptures. And what Father Gary Lagrange speaks, says about it, is that it's, it's distinct from revelation because it's not essentially making known something uh, that was hidden before. Rather, it's a divine impulse to record certain facts, um, which may either be gathered from natural knowledge or revelation, properly speaking. And he gives an example, makes sense, of St. Matthew. You know, when he's writing his gospel, you know, he records, for example, his own conversion, his own vocation. It's something that he experienced, as it were. You know, right. Our Lord came to his counting house and said, hey, you, come follow me. And he's like, okay, I will. You know, so it's not a revelation to him that that happened. It's just, okay, this happened to me. But he was re- inspired by the Holy Ghost to record those facts in a certain way because that's precisely what God wished to make known to us. Okay. And, you know, here, going back to Leo the 13th, you know, he speaks uh, in that same encyclical. Uh, he writes, For by supernatural power, God so moved and impelled the sacred authors to write. He was so present to them that the things which he ordered, and those only, they first rightly understood, then willed faithfully to write down, and finally expressed in apt words and with infallible truth. Otherwise, it could not be said that he was the author of the entire scripture, such has always been the persuasion of the church fathers. Therefore, says St. Augustine, Since they wrote the things which he showed and uttered to them, it cannot be pretended that he is not the writer, for his members executed what their head dictated. It's a very beautiful thought. But again, it shows that it's important because it indicates precisely that God is the author of the the Bible, which is why it has such depth of meaning and why it has such a way to appeal to our hearts. Because it's God truly communicating to us what he wills. Now, with that in mind, we should ask the question, what are the sources of revelation? Where um, do we know that God is revealed to us? Because we said, what is revelation? But now how how are we sure of what it is? Um, Right. And... To understand this, first, it's probably good to uh, understand there's a certain ambiguity in that word source, which I think can, might be good to, to clarify. So on the one hand, a source can be the origin of something. If you think of the source of a river, uh, you know, where does that river come from? And secondly, a source in a more um, maybe perhaps we could say colloquial way, it means, say, the channels by which that original revelation is communicated to other men and to future generations. So you have the origin of it, that's a source, and then you have, okay, the means by which that is then communicated to others. It's two distinct things. 
So obviously, if we speak of the origins, there's obviously only one source of revelation, which is God. <laughs> you know, that's there. There's no one else that can properly make known supernatural realities, and it's His illuminating action on the intellect of men. Um, you know, so obviously prophecy, etc. And here we can quote the beginning of Saint Paul's letter to the Hebrews. It's a very beautiful thing. So um, at various times. And in various manners, God once spoke to the fathers in the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he has constituted the heir of all things, through whom he has also made the centuries for the ages. So again, God, he takes initiative and he speaks to us. And it's interesting, perhaps, to note there that St. Paul does not speak about writing. He speaks about speaking. He has spoken to us. And obviously that means that, um, you know, the, the preeminent source an origin of revelation is going to be our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he's the one who's going to make known the chief elements of our, uh, what we know about God and his father. So, then we say that these truths that are revealed by God are then handed over. And there's a great quote from one of the epistles of St. Paul. Um, it's, in fact, in his second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, he says, Therefore, brethren, stand and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word, by speech, or by our letter. And there we have, ultimately, what we're going to say are the two sources of revelation. Firstly, tradition, our word. And in that context, you know, we can think of what St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, where he says that, look, faith comes by hearing. It's interesting. Faith doesn't come by reading. Faith comes by hearing. And nevertheless, we do have, of course, the written communication, the scripture. So we have those two sources by which these revelation, these truths are handed on over to us. And uh, in a moment, I'll um, quote a passage from Vatican I, uh, which makes that very clear, the, the council, the ecumenical council of Vatican I. But as a kind of an interesting aside here, um, it's interesting to note that our Lord Jesus Christ himself never wrote anything. With perhaps one exception. You know, it, the yes. only time that we see our Lord doing any kind of action that resembles writing is in recorded in St. John's Gospel when he has that woman caught in adultery brought to him. And when all these chief priests and these scribes are hounding him, telling him, okay, look, what do you think we should do with this woman? And he bends down and starts scribbling effectively in the dust at their feet. And, you know, there's, I've heard it said um, by some, I don't think this is a very um, common opinion, but it's, it's been said that, you know, he was maybe writing the sins of the men that were there. It seems a bit, I don't know, for my, for me personally, dramatic. And it's not, St. John does not, in fact, indicate what he's writing down in the, in the sand at their feet. Um, and there's a couple of things to note about that. Firstly, again, 
Our Lord never took time to write anything down. And even in this instance, it's very impermanent because it's just on the ground. It's just, and people are going to walk over it and it's going to be erased almost instantly. Right. You know, he never made that point, which you might think would give Protestants cause to, or pause to consider. You know, it's like, well, is it really the most fundamental thing? What is primary, actually? And it's not the written word. But, okay, now to come, um, to return to Vatican I, like I was saying, it's a, it's a beautiful council, um, very clear, very simple. But they speak about this question of supernatural revelation and how it comes to us. So to quote from it, we read, Now this supernatural revelation, according to the belief of the universal church, as declared by the Sacred Council of Trent, is contained in the written books and unwritten traditions, which were received by the apostles from the lips of Christ himself, or came to the apostles by the dictation of the Holy Ghost, and were passed on, as it were, from hand to hand until they reached us. So, you know, as far as the question of, you know, they say there, these uh, uh, revelations contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions received from the lips of Christ himself. If we think about that, in fact, what was received from the lips of Christ himself were only the unwritten traditions because he didn't write anything. Mm -hmm. he, didn't dictate, he didn't dictate any books to them. They weren't his scribes in that sense, at least when during his public life uh, and during the incarnation. So primarily, the, the primary thing there are those unwritten traditions, ultimately. They precede right. what is written. And um, in fact, are the context for what is written down. Right. It is, we, we did discuss this a little bit with Father Reuter earlier when we discussed the Old Testament, and we mm -hmm. covered some of this in, in some uh, broader um, context. But I, I had understood, and this isn't in your notes, so forgive me if I'm leading you astray, Father, but I had understood that it's a very different context back then, you know, some 2000 years ago, the written word was not as prominent as it is today. We have written books all around us, you know, right back there, you have them back there as well. And so it was much more common and it was a developed skill that most people had or many people had to be able to hear things and to be able to remember them. You and I in our day, you know, if I tell you three or four sentences, it's going to be difficult for you to remember it five minutes later. Uh, but back That's then, so that wasn't so much the case. Yeah. Right. Um, I think I'd even heard that the the initial books of Homer were not even written down for some hundred years or so. I, I might be getting the facts wrong, but mm -hmm. but that there were people who would sit down and listen and they would be able to recount the entire work of Homer as it was recited almost word for word. So it was uh, this this as it's written here, this this hand to mouth or, or lips to uh I've See, I even forgot the, the term right there, but uh, passing it on hand to hand, that was that was not as strange of a thing. And, and that can still be understood with some degree of, of certainty, unless I'm oh, way no, yeah. there. No, no, I think that's a very good point. And it's true in the sense that, I mean, the, the skill of both writing and reading, in fact, were exceedingly limited 
from our point of view, you know, compared to what we take as normal in our day and age, is in fact um, really um, a part of the liberal education that was reserved to the relatively wealthy, those who had leisure to be able to invest time to learn the skill, which was not directly tied to earning one's daily bread. And that's this precise. I mean, again, you know, as an aside there, it's, it's connected to our whole idea of school. School comes, our word school comes from the Greek term skola, which means leisure. So only those with uh-huh. leisure go to school. You know, those with free time, those who didn't have to work all the time to be able to provide for themselves. I always love, you know, explaining that to the, like the boys in the school here. It's like, you guys are so lucky. You don't have to work. You get to the school. And they're like, you know, it's just normal guy yeah. thing. Yeah. But, um, um, so, yeah. So for the most part, for most people, the way they would be instructed is by sermons, by preaching. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, it's really quite intriguing because, um, Interestingly enough, whenever St. Paul goes to a place, he just gathers crowds and talks to them. You know, he doesn't say, okay, here, I'm going to send you a letter, and you're going to have to read that letter, and that's going to tell you exactly what you need to know. He doesn't do that. He, he preaches to them, talks to them. You know, in right. many contexts, in you know, various different classes of people, you know, he preaches to, like, in, in one city, the Philippi, if I'm not mistaken, he starts talking to the washerwomen as they're doing their laundry in the, in the local creek because no one else is willing to listen to him. And then in Athens, he, he talks to the people in the Areopagus, these, these learned men, all of whom, you know, they're different classes of people. And intriguingly enough, you know, the uh, Acts of the Apostles themselves, do you have a, con- in a sense, that's what's an interesting book because we have a very clear uh, sense of um, uh, why it was written. Um, and in fact, it was written for one person. St. Luke, as we know as the author, wrote it for um, a person that he knew called Theophilus, for whom actually he also wrote the gospel that, that bears his name, St. Luke's gospel. You know, so in other words, mm-hmm. it wasn't a writing that was, okay, we're going to publish this for everybody. It's not a blog post that everyone has to read. It's for a particular person. But at the same time, obviously, God inspired him. You know, so we know that it's what it contains is um, divine in that way. Mm-hmm. Right. So no, I think that's. I mean, that's. It's a very good question. Um. And, and yeah, people just had a lot longer attention spans back then. Right. I'm reading, right. for example, right now the sermons of Saint John Chrysostom on the Gospel of Saint Matthew. And they're just sermons where he's going walking through the gospel and explaining it to people, probably many of whom had never been able to read it. They didn't. You know, it was very expensive to have. Um, what we would call a book or whatever. Um, so most mm-hmm. of them probably had not had an op- option that. So he's explaining it to them. He's reading it and explaining it to them. And some of these things clearly took like probably an hour to give. He's just talking to them in the church, you know, and they're there and they're listening. Right. It's like, okay, got time for this, you know, and nowadays, right. you know, Archbishop Lefebvre, I think he's like, yeah, basically you should limit yourself 10, maybe 15 minutes of preaching after 20 minutes. You're, People like they're just sitting it's there done. staring into yeah. space. Yeah, <laughs> and it's true. For, it's true for me. Like as, as a priest, when someone else is preaching, I, I kind of was like, I'm, I'm 
losing it, you know. So, <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to hear that uh, you feel that way too, Father, because uh, I, I don't feel that way at all. No, never. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it was just life. Right. Okay. Um. So yeah. So we have these two sources of revelation: the writing, which again, which originally was very limited, and then the oral traditions, which were the chief way that you know these truths were communicated. Now, um, kind of as the last thing to keep in mind is the rules of faith. And here, uh, it's because that, that term was used by those the Protestants in those uh, several quotations we gave, the scriptures are the sole rule of faith. And I think we want to look at what the church has in mind here. Because again, it's and what we will immediately see is that it's very, it just makes sense. Um, so firstly, what, what do we mean by a rule? What is a rule of faith? Um, it's not a law in the sense of you have to do this or that, but rather we mean it's, it's the measure um, by what we must believe to be revealed by God. What is revelation? You know, how do we know it? And then it also is that which determines the meaning of what we accept to be revealed by God. Okay, the fact of revelation and its meaning. So we can speak of a remote rule of faith, which of course ultimately is just going to be God himself. You know, God is the measure of what is revealed. You know, he's going to be the one to tell us, I revealed that by the way, and this is what it means. You know, just quoting the Catholic Encyclopedia, it says, since God or since faith is divine and infallible, the rule of faith must be divine and infallible. And since faith is supernatural, ascent to divine truths upon divine authority, the ultimate or remote rule of faith must be the truthfulness of God in revealing himself. And that's really whenever we make an act of faith, that's what we're saying. I believe all that you've revealed because you can neither deceive nor be, de be deceived. You know, you're uh, absolute um, infallible source or um, judge of what is true. That's all that means. Now, that's a remote rule of faith. That's the ultimate judge. So it means that we have approximate or something that's more immediate. And here, we normally have scripture and tradition, uh, those sources of revelation spoken of as rules of faith as well. They're, they help us to know what we have to believe. However, here we have to understand, as the Catholic Encyclopedia notes, since divine revelation is con contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions, as is stated in Vatican I, uh, as we uh, heard a moment ago, the Bible and divine tradition must be the rule of our faith. Since, however, these are only silent witnesses and cannot interpret themselves, they are commonly termed proximate but inanimate rules of faith. In the sense of, you know, kind of like an inanimate means without a soul, it cannot interact with us. It's there. But it's not necessarily clear what it's saying, as it were, um, especially when it comes to the Bible. Um, you know, it's, a, it's a point that's made by actually Plato, uh, a pagan, in one of his dialogues, The Phaedrus, where he says that, look, one of the problems of writing at all, period, is that it always says the same thing. No matter who's reading it. And even if they have questions, 
You know, you sit down and read a book. It's like, what does that mean? I'm sure you've never had that experience. You know, never. Every student, every student who sits down and reads a book that's assigned in class, like, what the heck is going on? (laughs) And the problem with the book is that the book by itself can't answer that question. You say, okay, what do you mean? Read the sentence again. It says the same thing. And um, as a result of that, um, it's inanimate. It doesn't have any interaction with us. It cannot respond to what we um, are confused about. And for that reason, we have another proximate rule of faith, which is ultimately the magisterium of the church, the teaching authority of the church. And here again, I'll just quote a few passages um, that uh, are in this article in the Catholic Encyclopedia on the rule of faith. Um, And there it says, Hence St. Paul calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. It's going to define what is true or not. And then again, St. Irenaeus, one of the church fathers in a book called Against the Heresies, writes, that it is not right to seek from others that truth which it is easy to get from the church, since the apostles poured into it in the fullest measure, as into a rich treasury, all that belongs to the truth, so that whoever desires may drink thence the draught of life. And then a little further on, he speaks, true and sound preaching of the church, which offers to the whole world one and the same way of salvation. And then finally, they, they quote a very famous passage from St. Augustine, where he says, I would not believe the Gospels unless the authority of the Catholic Church moved me thereto. Hmm. Which is very interesting. He writes that in a letter to uh, another person at his time. And his point is simply that, look, okay, the Gospels are beautiful. It's true. However, that by its very itself is not sufficient to ensure me that they're from God. I need something over and above that. And what that is, is the judgment of the church. Um, And there ultimately what we see is that uh, the magisterium, when it's related to the scriptures, in a sense, it's prior and authority to scripture. Um, In the sense that it exists beforehand in time, the teaching authority of the church existed as soon as our Lord commissioned his apostles to go and teach all nations. Right. At that very moment, they received from him the assistance of the Holy Ghost to teach unerringly whatever our Lord wants men to know before they write a single thing down. In fact, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, the, the earliest the Gospels is typically, you know, St. Matthew is typically understood to be written maybe about seven, eight years after our Lord ascended into heaven. All that time they're preaching right. and they're doing so definitively, but again, without, um, without having written anything down. <clears throat> you know, in St. Peter, of course, for his part, he begins preaching on Pentecost. And... Again, just to drive that point home, you know, St. Paul, when he's called, you know, he he retires in the desert and he basically receives from our Lord Jesus Christ himself the revelation and understanding of the truths before he writes anything. And again, like I was saying with, you know, what we see in the Acts of the Apostles, he goes to places and he teaches them. 
you know, you know, if we think of Saint Galatians or his letter to the Galatians, he writes to them and says, "Look, you have to remain faithful to the um, the gospel that you receive from me, and which is being mm-hmm. attacked by heretics already in your community." And again, it's what he taught them by by voice, and it's only after that and to defend it that he writes his letter. Right. So there's that aspect of it. And then secondly, and perhaps in a way, more importantly, the magisterium is prior in the sense of it's the church's magisterium has the um, power, we may say, to judge the authenticity of sacred scripture. You know, in order to answer precisely the question, how do we know that this or that writing is in fact inspired of God? It doesn't make the the book inspired by God. It's simply the uh, definitive judgment that that is the case. Okay. You know, um, you know, it's okay. That was well, perhaps before saying that. Um, so you have obviously there's a lot of apocryphal texts floating around the early church. You know, you have things like the Gospel of Saint James, Gospel of Saint Peter, things like that. You know, claiming to be written by the apostles and which in some cases you have very intriguing accounts of say the miracles that our Lord will perform performed as a young kid and stuff like that. How do we know that's not inspired? That's not true. You know, ultimately it's because the church made the decision that in fact, by the lie to the Holy ghost, you know, guiding us in our capacity as the successors of the apostles this is not uh, inspired. You know, similarly, with the question of the Book of Mormon, how can we, how can we know um, that that's not from God? Ultimately, the a judgment of the church, that's from God. You know? And you know, I think there we can read um, a passage or two. Um, from yeah, from the um, some of the council are the yeah some of the councils. So the council Trent, for its part, says that the gospel before promised through the prophets in the holy scriptures, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, first promulgated with His own mouth, and then commanded to be preached by His apostles to every creature, as the fountain of all both saving truth and moral discipline. And seeing clearly that this truth and discipline are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, which received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself, or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have gone down even to us, transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand. This synod, following the example of the Orthodox Fathers, receives and venerates with an equal affection of piety and reverence all the books, both of the Old and New Testament, seeing that one God is the author of both, as also the said traditions, as well as those appertaining to faith as to morals, as having been dictated either by Christ's own word of mouth or by the Holy Ghost, and preserved in the Catholic Church by a continuous succession. And then they go on to list the books of the Bible. You know, these are those books. And part of the reason that's in, and what you can see there is the church is a little bit repetitive, but so as to be very precise obviously, to make mm-hmm. sure that there's no loopholes. So the devil is very good at finding loopholes even so. And part of the reason 
that that decree was issued was precisely because there are some heretics who are claiming that, in fact, some of the books of the Old Testament aren't from God, you know, because they contain hard things of one kind or another. They perhaps in some cases, you know, it's a critique that God seems there to be presented as very bloodthirsty and very vengeful, et cetera, et cetera. And that can't be, that's can't be the same God as the New Testament you know, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the churches are, no, those are inspired. And we will not question them. Okay. Right. So I think that'll suffice for that. But the other, so it's what, okay. what books are inspired. But then secondly, and just as importantly, maybe in a way more importantly, is what do those books mean? You know, the Magisterium, the church, is the final interpreter of what the text actually is communicating to us from God. And that's something that we even see in Scripture itself. You know, St. Peter, his first two encyclicals, first two encyclicals of the first pope, you know, which are actually beautiful letters and which quote the Old Testament abundantly. But at the same time, St. Peter also makes it very clear that there has to be a public teaching authority in the church that determines what the scripture means. So in his first letter, or I'm sorry, in the second letter, in the first chapter, he says that understanding this first and above all, that every prophecy of scripture is not made by private interpretation, intriguingly enough, because not by human will was any prophecy brought forth at any time, but rather under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, by, who, um, by which the holy men of God spoke. Okay. So in other words, the Holy Ghost inspired them to communicate something very precise. So it's not just for anybody to look at that and say, this is what it appears to mean to me. Rather, the same Holy Ghost has to through ultimately the judgment of the church, give a definitive declaration of what this means. And again, practically, why that might be necessary can be seen a little bit later in that same epistle, where St. Peter is talking about a few things, and he throws in this little passage, you know, about these truths, as our most dear brother Paul uh, has written according to the wisdom given to him. Um as in all of his epistles, speaking about those things in which there are a number of very difficult things to understand, which the unlearned and unstable deprave or distort like the other scriptures to their own perdition. It's interesting. You know, wow. it's, it's great. So, you know, sometimes when reading the epistles of St. Paul, it's kind of frustrating. It's like, what, what is he talking about? When he says this, it's not clear. And St. Peter's like, yeah, it's kind of hard for me too. And what happens is people who are unlearned or unstable, they will take these writings and they'll twist them in such a way as to make them say something other than what St. Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Ghost, intended to convey. And I think that's a beautiful passage, which applies to someone like Luther perfectly. Like I've been reading, we'll be doing a podcast as well about about the question of um, uh, faith versus good works. And I was reading a Protestant mm -hmm. article about that, 
and the Protestant was commenting, it's like, yeah, it's true. It seems that same or not saying, but that Luther was a bit, oh, I don't know, maybe we could say agitated, maybe mentally unbalanced. That doesn't change the truth of what he was saying. And if you look at the history, the man was just clearly uh, battling with some awful scruples, awful scruples. Yeah. Apparently, even according to this yeah. Protestant source, he would go to confession on some occasions up to six hours in a day. You know, it's just that's just not balanced. Um, and he's an unstable man. And he twists these words, as St. Peter says. You know, the words of St. Paul, particularly, but also others, to his own perdition. And I think that's very true. You know, so in other words, there has to be something that can say, okay, look, this is what the church or what the scriptures mean. And so the count, you know, the church does that. You know, at the Council of Trent, she declares, furthermore, in order to restrain petulant spirits, the council fathers weren't you know, pulling any punches and those little petulant spirits. It decrees that no one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses or understanding, presume, presume to interpret the said sacred scripture contrary to that sense which Holy Mother the Church, whose it is to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures, hath held and does hold, or even contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers, even if such interpretations were never intended to be at any time published. You know, so the church is like, it's for the church to decide these questions. And so the private individual cannot take it upon himself to you know, give these commentaries, as it were. Yeah. Vatican I basically repeats that same doctrine. You know, it's just very clear. And then it might be good to quote a little passage from Leo Thirteenth, where he says that on this head, with the question being trying to make sense of what the scripture means, you know, and he compares it a little bit to other writings from ancient times. He says, on this head, it must be observed that in addition to the usual reasons, which make ancient writings more or less difficult to understand, there are some which are peculiar to the Bible. For the language of the Bible is employed to express, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, many things which are beyond the power and the scope of the reason of man, that is to say, divine mysteries and all that is related to them. Wherefore, it must be recognized that the sacred writings are wrapped in a certain religious obscurity and that no one can enter into their interior without a guide. God so disposing, as the Holy Fathers commonly teach, in order that men may investigate them with great ardor and earnestness, these truths, in other words, and that what is attained with difficulty may sink more deeply into the mind and heart. And most of all, that men may understand that God has delivered the Holy Scriptures to the church, and that in reading and making use of his word, they may follow the church as their guide and their teacher. In other words, it's a part of that humility that God wishes to give to us after the fall, 
that we encounter, you know, if we read the Bible, there's a lot of things that are hard to figure out, that are not easy and can, in fact, quite quickly lead us into false understandings about God. Right. Could we make a parallel maybe with some of the, for instance, some of the prophecies about the Redeemer that are in the Old Testament? People yeah. who were reading them before the time of our Lord, some of them just don't make any sense at all. But now with the hindsight of knowing who our Lord is and knowing his passion, his death, his life, the miracles, etc., now we go, oh, that all totally makes sense. Now that we're in mm -hmm. the New Testament age, so to speak, maybe that's the same sort of thing here. There's some there's some passages here that we just don't understand. At some point towards the end of the world, once everything is revealed, oh, now we're going to understand it. But right now we just can't. Is that sort of what Pope Leo XIII is, is sort of saying, uh, using my poor analogy? Oh, yeah, to some extent, yeah, for sure. You know, uh, for example, an e well, perhaps the easiest and most obvious example there is the Book of the Apocalypse. You read through sure. that, it's like, all right, what in heaven name is going on? <laughs> you know, you know, and it's interesting, kind of going back to the Mormons and from that point of view, you know, they'll, one of the things that they'll say, one of the, the presuppositions that they have is that after our Lord ascended into heaven, after the deaths of the apostles, basically immediately everybody fell away. And so God took the true church away into heaven and then sent it back uh, when Joseph Smith uh, randomly was born, etc. And mm -hmm. so what they will say is that, okay, look, in the very beginning of the book of the Apocalypse, you have these letters to the seven churches. And they'll claim that effectively that means, although the real meaning of those passages is that the church is going to disappear. Well, how do you argue with that? Ultimately, it's the, the judgment of the church that that's not the case, ultimately. Because um, you know, all these figures, you know, ultimately, how can we, by our own private understanding, figure out precisely what the Holy Ghost is intending to convey without the guidance of the church? And uh, it will make a lot more sense, like you're saying, at the end of time. It's like, oh, that's what you were talking about. That makes so much more sense now in hindsight. Right. Yeah. Perfect. Right. Um, yeah. So, 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 yeah. so the, the Protestant idea of, of private interpretation, you know, the, what the church is saying, what Pope Leo XIII is saying, what Trent, Vatican I, et cetera, they're saying that's a problem to try to dive into the scriptures without a guide, without any help. That's, that's going to create a lot of problems. Yeah. Not a, yeah, a lot of problems. And it's um, ultimately what they're saying is it's not this highest rule and authority of the faith. That's the magisterium of the church. And, the and we might say, loosely speaking, uh, tradition. And tradition is that which actually gives the context and the understanding of what we find in scripture. Okay. And it's not, I mean, and perhaps just a very simple way of seeing the problem with the Protestant approach is the fruits. Um, what has that led to? What is this idea, say, most clearly expressed by Calvin of the fact that the Holy Ghost is going to witness to the truth of the scripture by his, let's say, uh, internal communication of some kind to the faithful? 
ultimately what that's led to is complete abandonment of the belief that the, the scriptures, the Bible is from God because it's uncertain both about, okay, is this truly from him? Can I be confident about that internal feeling or testimony? And what does it mean? Because almost immediately amongst the Protestants, you have very intense and widely diverging interpretations of, of passages in one kind or another. For example, on the question of the Eucharist, on, on the question of authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so as a result of that, you have modern liberal Protestantism, which basically in modern uh, biblical exegesis, which I think Father Ruder probably has talked a little bit about looking at the authenticity of the texts in the sense of humanly speaking, okay, where did these come from? Who wrote them? How can we be sure they're you know, accurate reflections, the original? But um, you know, the, this modern scientific biblical criticism is founded on the idea these ultimately are not from God. They're just human texts in one way or another. Um, it doesn't express truths. And that's, that's a fruit of this confusion that flows from the Protestant approach. You know, so Vatican I um, comments that uh, in that time, this, you know, Vatican I was held in 1870, effectively. So indeed, even the Holy Bible itself, which they at one time claimed, so they being the Protestants, to be the sole source and judge of the Christian faith, is no longer held to be divine, but they begin to assimilate it to the inventions of myth. And again, Leo the Thirteenth, Providentissimus Deus, you know, he writes now talking about who we have to defend the Bible against. This proper understanding, he says, now we have to meet the rationalists, true children, and inheritors of the older heretics. So, the rationalists, those who deny the divinity of the Bible or the divine inspiration of the Bible, are the true children of Luther and Calvin, ultimately. And going back to Leo the Thirteenth. These rationalists trusting in their turn and their own way of thinking, it's that subjective spirit, have rejected even the scraps and remnants of Christian belief which have been handed down to them. They deny that there is any such thing as revelation or inspiration or Holy Scripture at all. They see instead only the forgeries and falsehoods of men. They set down the Scripture narratives as stupid fables and lying stories. The prophecies and the oracles of God are to them either predictions made up after the event or forecasts formed by the light of nature. The miracles and the wonders of God's power are not what they are said to be, but the startling effects of the natural law, or else mere tricks and myths, and the apostolic gospels and writings are not the work of the apostles at all. Because again, ultimately, all of this is the fruit, you know, if we're relying for this internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, ghost, which is just as much claimed by this other Protestant theologian who disagrees with me vehemently, ultimately is going to undermine this conviction that what we're dealing with is divine. If, if it's divine, shouldn't all of us be getting the same internal testimony of what it means? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's like a para... Go ahead. No, I was just saying that's, that's interesting. Go ahead. Sorry. Sure. It's, it's like a parable or parallel with, you know, the question of religious liberty. In the uh, syllabus of errors of Pius IX, he says, look, you know, it's absolutely false to say that by allowing everybody to practice religion publicly, that 
it's not going to undermine people's conviction of the truth of the faith. Because everyone's going to say, well, those people are nice. They don't believe the same thing I do, but they're pleasant to get along with. You know, how serious can these differences be? You know, and the same thing, uh, so you know, basically these people become atheists, ultimately. Do you have, does that make sense? Do you have any questions about that? No, it does make sense. Um, and it's it's striking how very clear Leo the Thirteenth was when he's when he's talking about this. I mean, he's he's he was writing this what 130 years ago or so, and it's yep. all the things that he's saying here about the rationalists. That is exactly what um, what what people are saying about the the scriptures and about the traditions of the church today. It's it's mm-hmm. prophetic. Yep, in a large part, it's a fruit of this Protestant approach. Um, not positively, but indirectly, because they removed the source right. of credibility of the scriptures, which is the magisterium of the church, which is tradition, let's say. Right. And so, um, I, perhaps- I do have one other one other question. Sorry, and and that is, I've I've heard the I've heard the comment from Protestants in the past, or I've read it from Protestants in the past that um, the church doesn't want Catholics to read the scripture. That the church doesn't trust Catholics to read the scripture. Um, mm-hmm. And based on what you were saying above, that the church does need to be the guide, you know, you can't you can't read it without a guide, et cetera, that does seem to hold some water, yes or no. Does the church want me to crack open my Bible at home and read it? Uh, I would say there is and is not truth to what the Protestants uh, say there. What's not true about it is the presupposition or what the reason they say that the church doesn't want um, its faithful to read the Bible uh, is because in the Protestant's mind, the church is afraid that when individuals will read the Bible, they'll see, in fact, that it teaches things other than what the church teaches. And that's not true at all. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And in fact, even laughable. But um, where, in a way, we could say that the church doesn't, as you put it, encourage people just to sit and, you know, plump down and crack open their Bible at random and start reading, is the fact or is the reason or the reason behind that is that the Bible is complex. As Leo XIII was saying, it's making clear revealing, but in an obscure way, um, these truths about God. And it can not be obscure because the truths are above human reason. You know, it's talking about God. And, you know, there's a great passage um, in one of St. Paul's letters to Timothy where he says that God inhabits light inaccessible. You know, it's like, in a way, looking at the sun. You know, you, and we don't go around saying, okay, look, just go look at the sun. That seems like a good idea. In all things in proportion, in a way, the Bible is like the sun. It's like the sun. It's like a ray of the sun, the sun being God himself. And obviously it's beautiful. It gives light to everything that we do. At the same time, to look directly at it can be damaging, at least in this life. You know, Um you know, it takes a long time of study to be able to um, 
to come to a, a certain knowledge of natural truths. And even then, it's oftentimes, you know, we start to try to present those. You go to a class, say, for example, I don't know about physics. And you're sitting in that class. You're not just going to pick up the physics book and I'm going to go read this. And then I'm going to go build a bridge. You know, right. that'd be perfect. Right. That's, that's what I should do. Okay. <laughs> not going to happen. Um, because precisely, even that natural truth is not easy to comprehend. And, you know, the, the parallel there with the Bible is okay. The Bible um, contains truths that are above the truths of physics, above the truths of metaphysics, even, we could say. Um, because it deals with the inner life of God, ultimately. And, you know, we can't just, I'm going to sit down and read this and then go build a bridge in the sense of, you know, uh, conduct my moral life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just, it can be very problematic. Now, at the same time, you know, it is good to read for, especially the Gospels, um, you know, to, to come into contact with our Lord, what he did, what he said. And they're very, in many ways, down to earth. And the church does put people into contact with that through the liturgy, the mass, where you have the gospel um, each Sunday, and oftentimes through the proper of the saints, you know, significant portions of the life of our Lord are presented, and willfully so by the church to the faithful. And even, right. But even there, it's often good to do so in, by reading commentaries. I was com saying that I, I'm reading the commentaries of St. John Chrysostom on the gospel of St. Matthew. And it's very intriguing because he really dives into it and he really spells out, okay, look, this is what's being said here. You can understand, this seems to be a problem, but if you understand this and this and this, it makes sense, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's a lot there. And he, and he dives back behind a lot of these things. He, sh he shows the context, which reveal a little bit more than, you know, the, the very Spartan language of the evangelists who are just very brief in what they say oftentimes. And it's, it's really awesome. It's very interesting. Okay. So, so bottom line, you know, sure, read it, but make sure that you have someone or some sort of commentary or guide or, you know, listen to the sermon on a Sunday when they're, when father is talking about the, the gospel that was just read during the mass that then he can give you the context for the epistle and or the gospel or whatever he decides to preach on that day. But you do need that assistance and help. And I think that's a great analogy of just, would you open up that physics textbook and start to read it? No, you couldn't. I mean, you could, but you're going to make a bridge that's going to fall down real fast. Yeah. Yeah. At least I would. Yeah. I'm not just, yeah. Um, fair enough. Me too. Trust me. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe to, by way of conclusion, is to read a few words um, from Cardinal P. Again, he's a great bishop in France in the 1800s. And um, these are the words that he spoke on the, I guess, the 23rd anniversary of his Episcopal consecration. And he says um, that the first of the questions which were addressed to us on the day of our consecration by the pontiff uh, from the hands from which we were going to receive the order of the episcopacy were these, was this actually. Do you, insofar as your nature is capable, wish to subject your intelligent to the teachings, your intelligence to the teachings of the Holy Scripture. Do you not wish to be a man any longer of your own particular sense? Do identify your spirit with a deposit of revelation? 
to enter with these sacred books into a commerce of every day and every hour, for then to expose them later to the people who will become yours, that which you have understood and collected from these adorable books. And I responded, I so will. Yes, in everything I wish to conform myself, subordinate my reason, my teaching, my spirit, to the reason and the teaching of the Spirit of God, the Spirit who is spoken by the prophets and the apostles. It's a beautiful thing. So what for a bishop? Do I wish to subject my mind to what the Holy Ghost has made known through the scriptures? And yes, yes, I do. So as to communicate that to the souls that are entrusted to me. And it's interesting. The bishop, he says, I will subject my mind to this, but so that I can communicate it then to others and to show the true sense of it. You know, to constantly be in these things, as St. Paul says to St. Timothy. So the church has this beautiful and high regard from the scripture, which does contain the words of life. And it's not out of fear of it, but she understands that the scriptures, um, they are the work of the spirit of God, who just as well communicated him, himself to the apostles in their preaching and in the unwritten traditions that they've handed over, in which we now speak of as tradition or the magisterium of the church. Mm-hmm. And is that which we want to look to and have that proper context of how to understand this, which helps us in dealing with Protestants. Again, it's, it's not like by exposing these things, we can convince them. It takes grace for somebody to accept well, you know, this reality. But it does allow us to give them the chance to have a pause begin asking themselves questions, which may be the occasion of that grace um, that God wishes to give to them. Right. Well, Father, that was a great help uh, for me for understanding on how to how to see the scriptures, how to see the Bible as as a Catholic and and to kind of put it all into context about the tradition and 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 again the interpretation of it. So thank you for putting that all together for us. We very much appreciate it. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.